Welcome to the Agronomy and Farm Management Podcast. I'm Amanda. And I'm Elizabeth. Thanks for joining us today. All right, well, welcome back to the Agronomy and Farm Management Podcast. Joining us today is Robert Mullen. He is the Director of Agronomy for Nutrien. So thanks for joining us, Robert. Amanda, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you. One thing that we've started to see some questions on is sulfur. Um, Due to our changes in energy use and updates in that technology, we're not getting the acid rain anymore. And um, some of those numbers were huge. So let's, you know, talk about that a little bit. Sure. So just a little bit of background. So the, the National Atmospheric Deposition Program, strangely enough, one of the sampling locations is in Worcester, Ohio. Um, little tidbit for you. Um, OARDC is actually the one that, that hosts that location. So within that program, they monitor um, nutrient deposition from rainfall. So we collect that information over fairly large geography. And, and what we've noticed um, with regard to sulfur deposition is a, a fairly dramatic trend and a decrease in the amount of sulfur that we receive in the form of a free nutrient for production agriculture. So if you go back to the 1980s, when that program was initiated, we're talking about sulfur deposition at a magnitude of about 25 to 30 pounds of sulfate sulfur per acre per year. Pounds per acre per year. That is per acre per year. So we're we're talking about a fairly sizable amount of sulfur that we were receiving as a free nutrient for crop production within our state and basically across the Midwest. Uh, As you fast forward, because as you'd mentioned, changes in, in the energy sector and scrubbing sulfur from the emission stacks. We're no longer getting that material pushed into the atmosphere, so we're no longer receiving that. We've gone from that 25 to 30 pounds per acre per year to, uh, in some areas, less than than five pounds per acre per year. And so what does that translate into? And we've talked about this really for the last decade, decade and a half, because we've noticed this trend. So we were constantly talking about as fertility individuals that, you know what, maybe we need to be a little bit more mindful of sulfur nutrition because we're not getting as much deposited in rainfall. And as you look across the landscape at what some of the university scientists are reporting, we are starting to now see responses to sulfur in areas that we traditionally would not have expected, right? So if you, if you look at the general guidelines that we used to employ for making sulfur recommendations, it was coarse textured soils, and that's primarily driven by um, the behavior of sulfur in soil. It behaves very similarly to nitrate. So if I do have those high rainfall events, it's going to leach out of the root zone just like nitrate can. Um, Lower organic matter soils, because we'd have a fair amount of sulfur in our organic material, and as that material is is mineralized, we're getting some sulfur release. Um, So we've traditionally focused on those areas, and we've also primarily focused on large sulfur-consuming crops. Alfalfa is probably our best example. But now we're starting to see sulfur responses in areas that we traditionally don't see. And we're not just seeing that in alfalfa. We're seeing that in corn, um, as Purdue has put out some more recent publications illustrating that fact. Uh, Iowa State University has also illustrated that in some more recent research. And now we're talking about sulfur response on soybeans with Sean Castile at at Purdue University. So this is an issue that I know when I had been thinking about it and where people, when people started asking me about sulfur, I thought it was going to take us a lot longer sure. to start seeing yield responses to sulfur. Um, so could you talk a little bit about the crop removal rates of sulfur and how that sort of explains why we're seeing this come up so quickly? 
Sure. So like most of our nutrients, the higher the yields that we achieve, the more nutrient that we remove. So um, just really quickly, if we're talking about a 200 bushel bean crop, or sorry, 200, if you could grow 200 bushel beans, you're doing really well. <laughs> um, Kip Kohler's has gotten close, right? He's hitting 160 in Missouri, but um, a 200 bushel corn crop is going to remove somewhere on the magnitude of about 27 to 28 pounds of sulfur per acre. Now that's just what you're removing in the grain. Um, soybeans, we're talking, if we're talking 60 bushel beans, we're going to be talking about 18 pounds of sulfate sulfur being removed per acre. So it's, it's not necessarily that the removal rates are, are that much more dramatically higher because 150 bushel corn crop is going to remove about 20. The real difference is how it behaves in the soil because it does behave like nitrate. It's not like a phosphorus material that's been deposited and that's not going to leach out of our fields to a great extent. We're going to get some small amounts of leaching. leaching. It's not going to leach out to a great extent compared to something like nitrogen or sulfur. So as soon as you turn off the spigot, right, as soon as we have really started to clean up the, the sulfur that we're getting deposited through rainfall, as soon as you turn that supply off, you don't have a large ready supply specifically in this environment because of our rainfall pattern. If you were to move further west, let's say west of I-35, where it's much more arid, they probably have some residual sulfate sulfur that they can lean upon from a plant nutritional status that we just don't have the capacity to hold on to because of our rainfall pattern. So it sounds like previous to these scrubbers going in, we were getting what the crop needed on a regular basis, like you said, for free. So now we're getting probably 20 pounds less than what we need. Um, so what's the best management practices for applying that then? Sure. So again, I'm gonna I'm gonna rely upon some of the research that's that's been ongoing from some of some some university folks, uh, Jim Combrado and Bob Nielsen at, at Purdue University. Typically, the fertilization rate. So if the if the removal rate's about 25 pounds, 20 to 30 pounds, it's in that ballpark. It's going to be a function of your yield level. Um, the application rates aren't really that high. So we're we're typically talking about a a sulfur recommendation of somewhere between 15 and 20 15 and 20 pounds of sulfate sulfur per acre. So the application rates aren't, aren't tremendously large. Um, when can those applications occur? Um, to be honest, when you, when you look across the, the landscape and, and look at the research that's published, that application can occur just before planting. Um, if, it's a, if it's a sulfate form, it can occur just before, before planting, all the way up to a side dress application timing. That's actually what some of the, the results that, that Jim and Bob have been finding at Purdue more recently is some fairly positive responses to side dress applications of sulfur. And again, the reason we can do that is because it does behave like nitrogen in that soil system. Um, so, so that's really the, the target for us. As far as sources, there's a, there's a number of sources that exist out there. Uh, we've got ammonium sulfate, which is, I don't know if I'd call it our most popular, but I would suspect it's the one that's the easiest to find. Gypsum is another material that we can utilize. That's calcium sulfate. There's some elemental forms. The only challenge with elemental forms of sulfur is that the day you make that application, it's not readily plant available. Um, so it does have to oxidize. It's a biological reaction that converts that into a, an oxidized form of sulfur, the sulfate that the plant can ultimately use. Um, ideally, we would like to use a, an elemental sulfur that's got a fairly fine um, product size or particle size. The challenge with that is it's really hard to apply those products. Um, as far as management, you want to avoid sulfate salts in the fall because it is like nitrogen. So if I do apply it in the fall, a lot of that's going to be lost before I ever get come back to spring and plant my crop. Um, so sulfate, 
salts need to be focused more in the spring. You can make those elemental sulfur source applications in the fall because it's not gonna, it's, it's not gonna oxidize in the winter because the soil temps are just too cold. Biological activity is slowed enough that it's, you're not gonna see any oxidation of that material until spring and soils start to warm up. So since it does behave like nitrogen, does that mean we can't do a soil test for it? Yeah, so we have traditionally tried to use soil test and my own experience has been it's very similar to the nitrate soil test. We, as you know, we do have pre-cidrus nitrate soil test that we do recommend in the Midwest. The typical problem that we have is because of our rainfall pattern and our inability to really store a tremendous amount of nitrate over the winter. Um, usually if I don't have manure, here's the caveat, if I don't have manure or I don't have a, a long-standing forage legume crop in my rotation, the benefit of that nitrate test is fairly small. It's very similar for sulfate. Um, I'm not saying that you can't use it, but my own suspicion is if you're using it and you don't have manure and you're, I'm, you're not going to see the, the nitrogen. Um, so we're not going to see the nitrogen carryover like if I'm using a forage legume crop. So there, that's really not a player in this. It's just the manure side for sulfur specifically. Uh, I would probably venture to guess that your sulfates levels are going to come back really, really low. So there's, there's really no point in paying for the analysis. If you do suspect that you do have a large carryover of sulfate, you can test for that. Do we have any guidelines? Not really. The only thing I would say is I think there's some work out of University of Kentucky, if I'm not mistaken. And their recommendation was if, if your soil test sulfur was north of 15 to 20 part per million, you probably didn't need any additional sulfate sulfur that given year. Um, but beyond that, there wasn't a, a recommendation. So if it was 10, it wasn't like we were backing off 50%, right? There, we, we just don't have that kind of soil test um, reliability for sulfur in this part of the world. Back west, it works fairly well, but not here because of our high, high, high rainfall amounts. So that makes this a, a challenge. Do you have any recommendations for someone who's trying to determine if applying sulfur would be an economic if they would see an economic benefit to applying sulfur? Yeah, there's a couple of different things that you can do. N number one is, is the visual assessment. Um, if you start seeing some general chlorosis in your field and you, you know you've got adequate nitrogen that you've supplied and, and you're starting to see it, it and it's, it's just like any other crop production issue, it doesn't exhibit the entire field, right? It's going to be pockets that are going to be, that are going to exhibit this chlorosis. If you don't suspect nitrogen and and there's ways we can test for this. We can use tissue testing, which is fairly reliable for sulfur. Um, this is from some of my own experience when I was at Ohio State University back in the day, um, diagnosing sulfur deficiency on some cornfields. Uh, it, it's fairly straightforward when you look at the tissue analysis that yes, this area that is chlorotic compared to the other areas that are not, it is a sulfur problem and therefore I need to be considering sulfur fertilization. So tissue testing is a really good way, um, but visual assessment is really the first place to start. And, most farmers will recognize it when you see it. It's just a general chlorosis. Now it's going to exhibit a little bit different from nitrogen. I say that and it doesn't always, but generally speaking, sulfur deficiency, the entire plant's going to be chlorotic. If we're talking about nitrogen, it's usually isolated to the lower part of the canopy. And in some cases of sulfur deficiency, it'll actually exhibit the lower part of the plant will be fairly green and dark, nice color and the upper part, the new, the new growth will be fairly chlorotic. Then it's because sulfur is not terribly mobile within the plant. So the, it's not like nitrogen, if it starts to run into a deficiency, the, the plant sort of 
um, retools and says, you know what, all this nitrogen that I'm accumulated in the lower biomass, it's not as photosynthetically active, so I'm going to shuttle that up to the new growth. Sulfur doesn't have that kind of capability. Um, so it's, it's going to be a, you're going to see more chlorosis in the upper part of the canopy than you would with a nitrogen deficiency. All that to go all the way there. <laughs> we did a podcast a couple weeks ago about nitrogen sensors. So as this technology becomes more affordable, that might be an issue because I doubt those sensors will be able to tell the difference between nitrogen or sulfur. That's correct. So I, I actually worked for a company that manufactured those sensors right out of my graduate program at Oklahoma State University. And as cool as they are, and they are tremendous instruments, they're actually fairly stupid when it comes to diagnosing what the problem is. They can tell you something's wrong, but they can't necessarily tell you what's causing the problem. Um, so that's where this concept of reference strips really becomes a big important player. Um, so how do I differentiate? Because the sensor was just going to tell you, and most of them are going to measure NDVI, the sensor is going to tell you, well, this area is not producing as well. It's the, the term that we've, we've often used is its vigor is lower. Um, and the sensor picks that up much more, much more quantitatively than my eyes can or your eyes can. But it doesn't necessarily, necessarily tell you the underlying issue. It just says there is a problem. It's up to us as agronomists to go into that field and then do some ground truthing to figure out just what the problem is. And the best way that we've come up with is what we call reference strips. Um, this is not necessarily a new technology. Um, a lot of this was developed by Bill Ron at Oklahoma State University and Jim Shepherds at University of Nebraska. Establish strips where I know that nitrogen is a limiting factor. Establish a strip where I know sulfur is not a limiting factor. And that becomes my basis of comparison. But yeah, it, it, with the use of those sensors, will it potentially identify more sulfur, sulfur deficiency? Absolutely, it might. But it's also going to require some ground truthing on the part of the agronomists that are employing that technology to actually confirm that's what the underlying issue is. And I think you bring up a good point about reference strips, even if you're not using sensors and you're not sure about um, what's going on, you could put some strips of sulfur out there to see how those yield better. Work. Absolutely. That's absolutely correct, Amanda. And, and we always say that because this whole sulfur issue, not everybody in the state is going to experience sulfur deficiency next year. I suspect we'll have pockets where we'll see sulfur deficiency. The challenge becomes... Um, and this also gets to Elizabeth's issue, or Elizabeth's question is, how do you help a farmer identify that he needs it? And the best way that we, we have at our disposal is on-farm experimentation. We're not talking about something ultra complicated. We, you don't need to have an experimental design or a statistics background to understand how to, how to do these simple strip plot type of experiments. But just going out and making an application, the, the unfortunate reality as it relates to um, experimental response and, and data collection and observation is one year's information does not tell you everything you need to know. <laughs> this is something that's going to have to be replicated over time because things change. Um, so you, so while you may not see a sulfur response this year, you go, you go a couple years, I don't see any visual symptomology that makes me suspect that I have any sulfur deficiency, but four years down the road, you know what? I'm starting to see some closeness that I, I've never experienced before. That's that other opportunity to come back and reevaluate what you're doing and say, oh, you know what? I didn't have it before, but now I I'm starting to ex experience sulfur deficiency. It's a continual learning process is, is really what I'm trying to say 
um, which is good. It's job security for those of us that call ourselves agronomists. <laughs> so I've got one more question about sulfur, I suppose. Um, do you see in your research any reason why certain regions of Ohio would start showing these deficiencies quicker than others? Uh, not really. The one thing I would say is when you, when you look at the di distribution pattern of the sulfur deposition that we still are getting, my, my own gut would tell me that if, if you're along the Ohio River, which is there, if, any, if you know anything about Ohio, there's a fair number of coal-fired facilities that reside along that river's channel. So if you're along that, that the Ohio River and then uh, moving north along the West Virginia border, going into Pennsylvania, my own suspicion is that little corridor is probably not an area that's going to experience as much sulfur deficiency because they still are in fairly close proximity as much as we have scrubbed out the sulfur that's being deposited. In that immediate area it, that's relatively close to those facilities, you're still getting some sulfur being deposited. So that general area I would suspect would be the lowest. Um, there's even some pockets as you get up towards Toledo uh, where we're, you can still see some fairly high rates. They're not what they used to be, but you can still see some relatively high rates of sulfur, sulfur deposition. But that's really it. Those are really the areas that I would that I would isolate. The other thing that I would say, Elizabeth, is it comes back to I still suspect that you're most likely to see sulfur deficiency on a coarse textured sandy soil that's low in organic material. I, I still think that's the, the predominant areas are going to first exhibit sulfur deficiency. I'm not saying that excludes finer textured soils that have a reasonable amount of organic material, but that's the um, that's the areas I suspect we're first going to really start seeing more sulfur deficiency pop up. So I guess that leads me to another oddball question then. Um, so if we're talking about those areas where it's still more industrial, there's also that trade-off where those areas along the river also have a higher proportion of those sandier soils. That is correct. So I guess, I mean, does that sort of counteract? Does it create like a wash, right? Yeah, it's, 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 a wash, right? <laughs> it's one of those things where yeah, more you think about it. Um, and again, I would I would revert back to to what I said before. It's pay close attention to what your crops what your crops are showing you visual from a visual perspective. What's the visual symptomology? And then if you suspect, and there, there's this concept called hid, hidden hunger, where the crop isn't ex expressing symptomology associated with a deficiency, but it's at a level that it's it's almost subtherapeutic is what we call it, right? It's for, that's something that is, you're probably more familiar with in human health. We call it hidden hunger in plants. If you suspect that, um, tissue sampling is what I would obviously promote. Soil sampling, I don't think is gonna capture it, but the tissue sampling certainly could. All right, so that was a pretty good overview on sulfur, I learned some things there, so appreciate it. Um, let's switch gears and talk about phosphorus. It seems like we're always talking about phosphorus here in Ohio with the recent issues we've been seeing with water quality. So I was really um, surprised. Well, I've seen some of this data before, but when I went to your um, nutrient economics website, it showed that almost half of farm fields in Ohio were below the critical level for phosphorus. Sure. So while that can be maybe a little bit discouraging as a soil fertility guy that sort of hurt my feelings a little bit because I spent seven years as a soil fertility specialist <laughs> in Ohio, and obviously guys weren't necessarily following our recommendations, which is fine. Um, 
so from one perspective, maybe I'm a little bit concerned, but from another, I think that what that also tells me is that what I've, what I've suspected all along, and there's other data to substantiate this, is the issues that we are faced with in Lake Erie, it's, it's not just a, a gross mismanagement by every farmer across the state. Um, it's, it's isolated pockets. It's a couple of different poor timing decisions with, as it relates to phosphorus application um, that are, that are not, I'm not going to say it's driving all of it, but that are probably significant contributors to the, the issues that we are faced with within the Lake Erie Basin. But that being said, it also represents an opportunities for farmers to recognize on those areas that are below that critical level, that's an opportunity for them to do a better job as a manager and hopefully generate, you know, before we started the podcast, we we're talking about economics. They can make better decisions on those acres to increase the revenue that they're generating from their, their production operation. Um, and that's, that's what we're all about. That's um, the website. And I, hopefully there's one at some point later on, there's going to be a chance to plug that um, the nutrient, the nutrient economic site that we host that's what it's all about. We're using university models to help farmers make the best decisions they possibly can. Um, and really what we're focused on are those areas that are below the critical level because those are the areas that are the, have the highest probability of generating the greatest economic return for producers if they change management practice. Um, that, that's really what we're all about promoting. Yeah, I'd like to go back um, to one of the points you made about application timing. and. I think that's key when we're dealing with water quality issues because you might be below the critical level, but if you're applying, for example, this winter where it's been saturated since what, October, November, frozen, snow covered, and even if you go out and apply on frozen ground and then, you know, chances are it's going to rain. Where are those nutrients going to go? The soil's completely saturated. I know you did, more with manure, but you did some runoff studies when you were at Ohio State. That is correct. Those nutrients do move even in manure that's less, a lot less soluble than these commercial fertilizers. Yeah, this is the rub, right? This is, this is where the difficulty resides in managing nutrient input into a crop production system in this environment. So if you move further west, they don't have the rainfall pattern. It's not I'm not going to say it's not a it's it's not a concern because ultimately it is. It's not as large of a concern because the challenge that we have and this this fall was a, a great example of this. Part of the reason we want to do as much fall field activity as we possibly can is spread out the labor load in the spring, and that's a real concern because we do have wet springs as well, and farmers want to plant as soon as the field is fit. They don't want to be they don't want to have to worry about another tillage operation or a fertilizer application. They ultimately want to plant crops. So part of the motivation for, for that fall behavior is labor availability and accessibility to the fields. This past fall, we were so wet in so many areas, how much of that field work did not get completed. And for, for us in, in commercial agriculture, relying strictly upon commercial nutrients for input, that's a challenge, but we can manage that. And in fact, we don't have a choice when you get into the Lake Erie Basin with some of the legislation that was passed a couple of years ago. You're not allowed to make a land application of any fertilizer material on frozen snow-covered ground. Now, that's isolated to a few counties, right, in the, in the northwest part of the state or the northern part of the state. 
but it's something that the rest of us should probably be practicing. The challenge becomes what happens when I have that really, really bad fall. Um, and, and I don't have any really good answers to that. And to be honest, not, none of us do. We would prefer that that happens in the fall. I can make that application, maybe do some light incorporation, get that, that's phosphorus below the soil surface, which is where we ultimately want it to be because it's, it's at a much lower risk of nutrient transport. Um, we would like to avoid those winter applications, but with like this, this past fall, I didn't want to tear up my field. Um, what's my, what's my alternative? And that's a really tough one. Again, we in the commercial side, we can deal with that. Um, I, I, to be honest, I hate to say some of these things out loud because I don't have any research data to back this up. This is my own ideas. As it relates to managing, managing phosphorus and potassium, it's not terribly critical when the application occurs. I just want to make sure that I'm keeping my soil supply well stocked. So you can make these applications mid-season, to be honest with you, as long as your soil test isn't terribly low. If you're in a situation where you're, you're well below the critical, you don't, you don't, you're not afforded this luxury because you have an immediate crop need that you're not satisfying. You need to make sure I have an adequate supply. But if my soil test level is in that maintenance zone or, or right, you know, I, my personal opinion is, is maybe a little bit higher on the, towards the end of that maintenance zone. I have a lot more flexibility to the way I manage my inputs. I can make those applications really at any time and, and still maintain a good reserve of nutrients in my soil bank, which is ultimately what I'm trying to do. My greater concern as it relates to phosphorus issues is the animal operations. And I'm not pointing fingers. I'm not calling them out. It's a realization. They have X amount of manure storage that they have on hand. And what happens if they miss that fall application because it was so wet and they would have done more damage than they would have done benefit if they'd have made that application. And so they have to wait for frozen ground. Um, and Amanda, you pointed out some of the work that we had done when, when I was a professor there at OSU. This is where it gets really critical when you're managing these frozen ground applications. If you're forced to do it, ideally that's not what we want. But if you're forced to do it, the, the one thing that I would say is the setbacks that we've identified work relatively well. Now, they work so well, in fact, that I, I was surprised at how well they worked. <laughs> I really <laughs> didn't think they would work that well, to be honest with you. But these, these 200-foot setbacks or 50-foot setbacks work relatively well for these applications. My humble opinion, I think that they may not have the same utility, but my suspicion is they would work well, maybe not as well, because as you mentioned about the solubility differences between animal manure and commercial fertilizer, that if you have to make those frozen ground applications, identify setbacks from sensitive areas, ditches, um, waterways, keep that fertilizer product, whatever it is, whether it's commercial or manure, keep it away from those sensitive areas as much as you possibly can. Because it is a physical impediment. And is it, is it ideal? No, but we're, we're trying to give allowances where allowances are required. And you're also keeping the money that you spent in the field too. That's, yeah, again, it all comes back to economic management. This is part of the rub as it relates to, it even relates to nitrogen management because it, at one point in my, it, when I was a young idealistic PhD, I suspected that the, the economic benefits for managing nitrogen were gonna be such that it would provide environmental benefit. It unfortunately 
that is not necessarily the case. It's even a harder case to make for phosphorus. Um, because the amount that we lose, because again, we've done some of this work with Dr. Elizabeth Dayton, who's, who's there at Ohio State University. We've done some work with, with that group. This, the reality is the amount that we lose, even in these large runoff events immediately after a fertilizer, fertilizer surface application, less than 5% of what you supplied. Economically, agronomically, that's not a huge impact. Environmentally, that's a sizable impact. And there is, therein lies the rub, is we have to manage that application. We have to think about how we're managing those inputs a little bit differently because of this reality. Um, and that's really where I came back to, you know what, we, we need to get as much of this material below the soil surface as we possibly can. Because when you look at the data that exists, not just from what we collected here, uh, studies at Iowa, study at Kansas, they all illustrate the same thing. If you can get the phosphorus below the soil surface, with, with now the, the trade-off is I don't want to do a lot of tillage that would encourage erosion, right? So I, I'm sort of juggling these two different desires, um, but, but that's the unfortunate reality of the way we have to manage nutrient inputs into this production system. Um, but if I can get just that sulfur or that phosphorus just a little bit below the soil surface, it's much less susceptible to loss. But I don't want to do it in such a way that I encourage erosion. Yeah, that's the interesting thing about agriculture is it seems like there's a trade-off to everything. It's the nature <laughs> it's of all science. It's frustrating at times, but it's also a challenge, I think, that we like to work on. It keeps yeah. us engaged, I guess. That's the nature of all science. There's always a trade-off. If, if I have one desire, there's something else that I wasn't intending on. There's going to be an unintended consequence. And the, the, the challenge is identifying those and coming up with coming up with approaches that address as many of the issues as we possibly can. I mean, that's really the ultimate goal. Yeah, we've got, when you look at all the challenges that we're facing, whether that be the, the weather trends that we're dealing with and our inability to get in the field at these critical times, um, along with the environmental challenges that are pressed upon us, you know, we've got some tough questions that we need to answer. That's exactly correct. And, and you guys travel like I do. So, so you interact with a lot of farmers. I don't know of a, of a single farmer that makes a decision and does it and says, yep, I don't care if there's an environmental impact. They never operate that way. The challenge that they have, and it's the same challenge I have as a scientist, is what do I bring them as a solution to the problem? And with the realization that any solution I bring is going to have other problems. It may not be environmental but it might, be, it might be an economic hindrance to his operation. It might be an agronomic hindrance, which is likely going to translate into an economic hindrance to his operation. Um, this, is, this is the challenge for us as scientists that have chosen this as our, our field of interest. Yeah, if our solutions are putting people out of business, it's not the right solution. That's not a solution. Got <laughs> <laughs> to keep that in mind too. Well, Robert, a lot of great information. We really appreciate your time. Um, why don't you share with us some of the resources that you have there? Sure. So, the, so the one that we manage and that, that we really promote the, the hardest is, is nutrient-economics.com. The economics is spelled E-K as opposed to E-C. We do know how to spell. Um, <laughs> it was a marketing because potash is a, a large portion of our portfolio so that's where the the k come from comes from in that spelling um, a lot of information on that site uh, unfortunately you're going to see my face a lot but we 
I, I know that you two have, have sort of perused that site a little bit. The one thing you've probably noticed is we rely a lot upon third-party scientists to provide content to the site. Uh, Antonio Malarino out of Iowa State University has been a contributor. Um, uh, oh my word, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to omit a lot of names. Paul Fixon, who's now retired from IPNI, uh, was a big contributor. We have purposefully identified scientists in the university system um, to provide content to that site because everything on that site I can reference back to a public publication somewhere or from a presentation from a scientist that's employed at a university. Yeah, I noticed that. And of course, being part of the university system, I appreciate it and um, and not afraid to share that, I guess, because I see our stuff here at Ohio State and from around the country. Exactly. And, and, and like I mentioned before we got started, there's four great agronomists that I, the three great agronomists that I have the opportunity to work with. Um, they're also contributors to, the, contributors to that site. Uh, the one thing that we're really big on is you better be able to justify everything that you put on that site. <laughs> there better be some reason for it and there better be some scientific justification for it. Yeah, there's definitely some great information there. So we'll, we'll put that link in the description and check that out. And we would appreciate that. All right. Thank you. Well, thanks for having me, ladies. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Agronomy and Farm Management Podcast. Join us again in two weeks for our next episode.